Welcome to Politicus, the only podcast that discusses politics and public service from the Portuguese-American perspective. Here we discuss everything from federal policy, local issues, and U.S.-Portugal relations with the goal of driving more discussion and awareness of the issues affecting our nation, our community, and what we as Portuguese-Americans can do about it. And now, Politicus. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Politicus. My name is Angela Samoz, and I'm here with my esteemed co-director of Palkus, Dinesh Borges. Hi, Dinesh. Hello. I love the, co- the esteemed. <laughs> you know, we, we have to uh, pump each other up where we can, right? That's for sure. Um, that's for sure. Welcome, everyone. So our guest today is Tim Perry, who is chief of staff in the governor's office of emergency services for the state of California. And we're really excited to have him. We, I don't think we've ever had anybody in this kind of position or that covers this, this area. So um, welcome, Tim. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great to be a part of the podcast. So I was looking at your bio, and uh, you're, a, you're quite accomplished for a young guy. You're, you're 40, right? I am. I am. Don't, and, don't tell um, anyone. No, I know. Well, you know, <laughs> our secret. I know, our secret. <laughs> but I was just, uh, I was just so impressed with everything that you've accomplished so far. So why don't you give our listeners just a little background on how you got started and what got you interested in this line of work, and then eventually, you know, how you got to to where you are today. Sure. Well, uh, I grew up in Long Island, New York, and I had uh, the opportunity to go to Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. After Brown, my, my first job, my very first job, was as the very first volunteer for who was then a mayoral candidate, David Cicilline, who, as you know, is now... Oh, amazing, um, yeah. Right, he's exactly. He's, now he's representative in the, the first district of Rhode Island, representing what we all know to be the district with the heaviest concentration of Portuguese-Americans in the United States as it happens. Yeah. And he's also co-chair. He's co-chair of our friends of Portugal in the U S Senate. So yeah, that's great. Small world. He is. He is. Um, and yeah, well, he was great to work for um, at the time. This was a long time ago. This was back in 2001 where I, I hope you wouldn't mind me saying so both David and myself were probably had a little bit more hair, you know, a little less gray in the <laughs> hair, probably 20 pounds lighter each of us. Uh, anyway, <laughs> You know, he, he took me on as a volunteer for his um, campaign. At the time, the, the politics in Rhode Island, in Providence specifically, was that there was a what was called a renaissance happening in Providence, so that everyone was um, very proud of the redevelopment that was happening in downtown Providence. And the mayor at the time, Buddy Cianci, was getting a lot of credit and national attention for that um, renaissance. What David thought was that this might be to uh, the exclusion of some of the neighborhoods in Providence. And so his approach to the campaign, and at the time, really, he was a fairly unknown state legislator challenging this popular incumbent, kind of a long shot bid. What his approach was, was to start introducing himself to the people of Providence by walking the neighborhoods. So not focusing on downtown, but trying to draw the focus to the neighborhoods where people lived and, and worked, the neighborhoods that maybe had not been getting the same attention that this downtown renaissance had, had brought to downtown Providence. So what I did was I actually walked with him throughout these neighborhoods, knocking on doors, you know, walking all up and down the blocks and the neighborhoods, kind of sweating through our shirts and, and talking to folks 
when we met them and introducing uh, David and his his perspective. Um, and when we would come upon some some Portuguese speakers, which would happen around Fox Point um, in particular, obviously I'd I'd do my best to try to speak to them in in Portuguese, um, which I speak, but I speak very poorly. So it <laughs> it didn't always go over that well. Uh, they would be thinking, what the heck is going on here? We've got this kid speaking mm-hmm. terrible Portuguese and uh, this guy who wants to get elected to something. Nevertheless, you know, as it happened, um, Buddy Cianci, the, the mayor at the time, got into a little bit of legal trouble during the campaign. David Cicilline won. And that was really my first experience, my introduction to politics. And, and it was a good one. How was that for you as a young Portuguese American, still speaking a little bit of the language, as you said, how was that experience connecting to people who in Providence are still very, very Portuguese American because it's one of the areas in the in the U.S. where there's an older generation, but there has been also a strong presence of the what we call the posh uh, couple English volcano generation, the generation that came in the 60s and 70s. How was that experience for you? Well, I have to say, you know, it was a, a challenging experience because I think making that connection can be difficult, um, particularly, you know, in an environment where you've got a, a fairly unknown candidate who himself is is not Portuguese American, but is trying to build that bridge to the Portuguese American community. So, you know, for, for me, I grew up in a, a household that didn't really speak Portuguese, you know, we, we would go to New Bedford, Massachusetts in the summer, go to the Fishta, so we still had this, this connection to the culture, but this was really my first experience trying to bridge the gap and, and trying to engage on a, on a political level. And I found it to be a positive experience because you have a certain concentration of Portuguese Americans in Providence so that their voice matters. Mm-hmm. Outside of Providence, I find that that is not always the case. So, for example, in California, where the population, where the, the Portuguese diaspora is a little bit more diffuse, even though there are a fairly large number of Portuguese Americans in California, they don't have that same political power. So it was kind of an, an early lesson for me in the, the, the need to organize and the need to leverage whatever concentration of Portuguese American people there are in a particular you know, political subdivision. So, sorry for the for going that direction, but I just wanted to add that in. So please do continue with your story. It's fascinating. After I worked with David, I had the, the, the opportunity to, to go to South Africa on a Fulbright fellowship. I earned a master's degree in political studies. When I was there, I, I came back and attended law school at Berkeley Law School out here in California, my first experience with California. Um, you know, I have to say, growing up in, in New York, I always figured that after law school, I would return to New York. Of course, there I was the first winter that I spent in California, standing outside wearing shorts and you know, <laughs> feeling the sunshine on my face. And it's hard thought, to you compete know what, with that. <laughs> that's right. You know, I, I think what they say is, you know, if a New Yorker spends uh, at least three years in California, he's probably not going back to mm-hmm. New York. And, and I... I definitely fell in that bucket and have really stayed in in California um, ever since, uh, on and off. After law school, I had the opportunity to clerk for a federal judge on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, And I also, for a short period of time, worked for uh, Justice Joyce Kennard, who is an associate justice on the California Supreme Court, although that was 
during a, a stint in law school. So it's something that we would call an, an externship or a, sometimes called a, a clerkship. Mm-hmm. And, you know, both judges uh, taught me a lot about how to be a good lawyer. Anyone will tell you this, that some of your first experiences as a newly minted lawyer, if you're lucky enough to clerk for a judge, will be um, being put through the crucible of helping those judges make decisions, act in a neutral way to really truly set aside your biases and preconceptions and um, reach decisions that are, that are fair to everyone. So after those clerkships, worked for a law firm briefly and then became an AUSA in San Diego, an assistant United States attorney, in other words, a, a federal prosecutor. And that is to this day where I consider myself to have grown up professionally speaking within mm-hmm. the United States Department of Justice. Anyone who was an AUSA or most who have been an AUSA will tell you that it was the greatest job that they've ever had. And I will tell you that it is probably the greatest job that I ever had, will ever have. Um, Real opportunity to really give back to your community, protect your community while developing yourself professionally. You know, your responsibilities are essentially to investigate federal crimes charge people when they've committed those crimes, try cases, which is a sort of dying art in the legal profession these days. Few people get that opportunity to really truly walk into court and try cases, particularly when they're young lawyers, and really just generally make make for a better federal district in which you work, a safer, better district. So um, did that for a number of years, did all the things that, that AUSA's get to do working a lot on the the violent crimes that happen along the U.S.-Mexico border, ultimately landing in a section called the Major Frauds and Special Prosecutions section. That's a section that focused on cases that were especially high profile or especially complex or sensitive. So typically those would involve fraud cases with publicly traded companies, but also some cases involving public corruption. So have definitely run teams of FBI agents conducting surveillance on elected officials. Um, definitely, you know, led teams that were looking into judges whose background we maybe questioned, whose some actions we, we questioned, and dealing also with a lot of international issues. Had the opportunity to work with counterparts in other countries everywhere from Hong Kong to Turks and Caicos, reviewing bank records, uh, sharing information to trying to bring justice uh, where it was necessary to bring justice. After wow. I worked as a prosecutor, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 I just say, wow, I feel like we could, you know, make a movie out of some of the things that you've done. Um, it's, it sounds quite exciting. <laughs> Probably have to be in a third person character, I'm sure. But uh, uh, how did you transition <laughs> from there to the, to actually the state of California? And I'm sure you're going to get to that. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I, being a prosecutor, I think that as great a job as it is, there comes a point where maybe the learning curve evens out a little bit. So I, and this might segue a bit into uh, career advice for, for those who are, are looking for it. I've always thought that the best approach to a career is the zigzag approach to a career. So uh, I've always wanted one of those careers that lives partly in public service and then partly in the private sector, so that I was never just one thing. So after being 
a AUSA. I, I moved into private practice, a large law firm, uh, conducting internal investigations at at public companies and working with a lot of other folks who had been federal prosecutors. So basically at a, a law firm called Wilmer Hale. One of my colleagues was Bob Mueller, right? A lot of colleagues who had who had, had distinguished careers in government service and were in some sense extending that in the private sector. Uh, worked on the Clinton Kane transition in the sense that I assisted with the vetting of cabinet level officials who candidate Hillary Clinton and candidate Tim Kaine were contemplating as you know possible additions to a, a cabinet and a Clinton presidency. Um, as we all know, Hillary Clinton did not prevail in the election. So at that point, I, I sort of thought to myself, uh, you know, what am, what am I going to do now? I was looking forward to continuing the zigzag pattern and returning to government service. Um, and I am a Democrat, so I was, uh, you know, not really someone looking to, to join the current presidential administration and, uh, you know, decided what I'll do is I'll try to support state level campaign, specifically Gavin Newsom's gubernatorial campaign. I became a co-chair of his policy committee, along with a couple of other uh, you know, great folks who have since joined the administration. Um, joined very early, long before the uh, primary for the gubernatorial election, so spent maybe a year and a half working on, on policy issues for that campaign. And so when Governor Newsom won the election, um, they reached out and talked about you know, different opportunities, and ultimately he appointed me to my current position as the chief of staff at the governor's office of emergency services. And what, is, uh, the, what does that entail? You know, generally, what are your responsibilities in that position? Yeah, so it, it, Cal OES is the, the lead, and that, that's how we abbreviated Cal OES, is sort of how the, the folks talk about it within um, state government. It's the lead emergency management and homeland security agency for the state of California. It um, exists within the governor's office because it's charged with coordinating the actions of all other state government agencies in the event of a disaster. So uh, something might happen. It could be a wildfire. It could be an earthquake. And Cal OES is then in the position of what we call mission tasking, where essentially directing um, other agencies like the Highway Patrol or the National Guard or the Department of Technology to take certain actions in response to whatever incident it is that we are dealing with. It is an all hazards agency, which means it addresses natural disasters, but also uh, human caused incidents of all types. So think wildfires, floods, oil spills, mass shootings, all of it is within the Cal OES bailiwick. Uh, and, you know, the other thing that I think is interesting to note about emergency management agencies like Calaris generally is that they're responsible for all phases. And what that means is that they're responsible for preparing or planning for incidents and then also responding to them and then assisting finally after the response, assisting survivors with the sometimes very long road to recovery. And I, I mentioned that all phases concept just because it, I think, in the public's mind, we often think of emergency management agencies as dealing only with the response. Something happens, an earthquake happens, right. a wildfire happens, and so we respond to it. But it's actually um, you know, a project or a discipline 
where the work starts long before the incident even takes place and then continues long after the incident is, is, is no longer an active incident. Gosh, I have so many questions, as I'm sure you do too, Denise. Uh, I mean, the, that position is quite a, a zag in the zigzag, right? Because it's not law, like what you've been doing, right? You're not prosecuting. It's a, you're running a, a department, essentially. So what, what, how, how did you experience the, I guess, the transition from focusing on, you know, investigations and prosecutions, things like that, and now into managing this department? And what has that experience been like? And I guess what have been the challenges, but also what have you been able to take from your previous experiences to apply to this mm. position? Right. To my mind, uh, it's been a transition where I've been broadening my horizons. You know, when you're a, a prosecutor, you are, if you were to think of these phases from preparing and preventing, responding, and then recovering from, prosecutors and law enforcement tend to focus on the response. There's some exceptions with it, but basically law enforcement, it's a response function. So making the transition has been uh, really gratifying and eye-opening because there's a lot of great work that can be done outside of that phase of response that can be done in preparing for incidents and that takes many forms. It could be, for example, coming up with a way to distribute grant funds throughout the state in a way that makes certain institutions more resilient against things that we think is going to happen, whether that's retrofitting or you know, in preparation for a possible earthquake or uh, helping to fund security for you know, mosques and synagogues. Those are the sorts of things that a prosecutor wouldn't do, but an emergency management agency can do to help you know, support communities, make them more resilient against things that, that, we, that we fear mm-hmm. might happen. And you know, for me, it's also been broadening in that I don't function as a lawyer within the organization, although I have that legal background. Uh, but having a legal background can be very helpful to some of the executive responsibilities that I do have. So when you're running one of these organizations, when I'm supporting the director who uh, is the the leader of this agency, a lot of the work entails dealing with internal audits, for example, dealing with Mm -hmm. our own chief counsel, dealing with personnel matters. And so having a legal background, I think, can be um, very advantageous, Uh, not just because of the substantive things that I might have learned along the way, but because the, the, the discipline of being a lawyer is one that trains you over time to focus on issue spotting and identifying risks. And so we have an organization that is very good at identifying external risks, right, (laughs) to people out in the world. Uh, It's an organization, I think, like any, that also needs to attend to its own internal operations and identifying, looking around the corner at at what what can we do now to make this uh, organization even better tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I wanted to touch upon and your uh, your involvement in the political world from uh, the getting out uh, in in the way early years of uh, way early years. You're so young; it's just been you know yesterday. <laughs> but uh, when you began at the mayor's office, and then of course with the different uh, involvements all the way up until the transition team, uh, the possible transition team for Secretary Clinton um, and Senator Tim Kaine. The, um, the idea that sometimes we have in, in, uh, in the population in general and in our Portuguese-American community that the important thing is to be 
having an elected office to being in the state legislature or to be in Congress, etc. But there's a lot of other work that goes behind the scenes um, and a lot of other work that's so important to get you in, for example, all these wonderful positions that you've had in, uh, in the last few years. Um, let's talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about that, that aspect of it. Um, for young people, especially, who are listening to the podcast, what would you, younger than you, <laughs> what would be the uh, some of the, I would say, encouragement that you could give to them if they'd like public service. I mean, public service is getting a bad rap nowadays at all levels. Um, mm -hmm. But, um, you know, what would you tell someone who is now in college, who is now even uh, leaving high school and going to college or just recently out of college and looking at different opportunities? What would you say? What are some of the uh, things that, that you could, some of the pointers that you could give to them and how you feel about public service in general? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I'd have to say, first of all, and speaking from experience as someone who's worked in both the private sector and in public service, that you cannot beat the mission of public service. Mm -hmm. There is nothing more rewarding than giving back to your community in whatever way you choose to do that. And everyone I know who has done public service is either still doing it or misses it. So once you try it, this is what I would say to, to you know, folks who are contemplating a, a career giving back, is that once you try it, you're not going to want to stop. It's really a calling, and there is nothing more rewarding. In terms of careers, I would you know, commend young folks to seek out what, you know, what I've already called here today a zigzag career, uh, just because if you, if you work both in government, you work in the private sector, you're going to begin to develop a really broad, nuanced perspective on the things that work, the things that don't work. You know, in, I think particularly in the private sector, but also in government, sometimes we, we talk to ourselves about silos, mm -hmm. right? Organizational silos and how it's, or sometimes, uh, you know, they're called smokestacks or, you know, whatever metaphor mm -hmm. you want to use, these sort of organizational hierarchies that, Mm -hmm. are parallel to each other, but don't talk to each other. So we talk about the need to break down these silos and, and you know, kind of leverage synergies. Well, to me, I view being only in one kind of career or only one type of discipline to be a kind of silo in itself. Mm -hmm. So in addition to pursuing public service, I would just commend to folks to not do any one thing, but do many different things because that is uh, going to make you a better public servant. Uh, it's going to teach you more than you would otherwise learn. I think that's a great bit of advice because you can get stuck, right? And then you get bored and then you start wondering, is this even what I want to continue doing for the rest of my life? So I think it's a great bit of advice. I would love to know from your perspective, you know, so you talked about your first encounter working with, at the time, you know, mayoral candidate Cicilline, encountering the Portuguese community, and then you had to use a little bit of your language skills. But then you have since gone on to be a man of the world, essentially. And I'm curious as to how your Portuguese background has influenced, whether positively or, you know, perhaps negatively, um, those experiences. And not necessarily in terms of the language itself, but just do you feel like being raised in a Portuguese-American household had an impact on how you view the world and how you approach to these different experiences? 
Yeah, I, I think, I think that it has. So, you know, first of all, both sides of my family trace some Portuguese roots. The most recent is my, my grandfather who immigrated to the United States from Madeira Island, um, specifically Sumera Drava, which is west of Funchal, on the south coast. It almost feels a little funny to identify a specific location on Madeira because mm-hmm. you, know, you just drive 45 minutes and you're uh, back to where you started. His <laughs> last name was uh, Pereira, which is you know anglicized to Perry when he got here, fairly common anglicization of, of that particular name. And he, and his, his name was João Pereira, he bounced around New England when he first arrived in the United States. Fairly typical story. Was a merchant marine, and then later made his living cutting lawns and mixing chemicals for greenhouses. You know, typical in the sense that he was, for someone of Portuguese descent at that time, one, poor, and two, really engaged in maritime and agricultural work. He made it so that his son, my father, was able to get a civil service job in New York State and pull the family out from that lower economic rung so that I was able to grow up on Long Island in a family very aware of its Portuguese heritage, but one that had you know, pulled away from that initial, initial immigrant experience um, mm-hmm. that so many Portuguese Americans have when they first arrive in New England around the, around the time. So, you know, today, here I am working in the state as an appointee, but with, um, you know, staff that support the director who are part of a civil service. And so I often think when we are, you know, talking about kind of reconfiguring the way that we do hiring, for example, I think about the important place that the state plays, the important role that the state plays and giving opportunities to folks who maybe are looking to pull those themselves up the economic ladder out from a, a lower income kind of a situation to the middle class. That was certainly mm-hmm. the experience of, of my family. And I know that for many of the people that we as a state employ now, that is also their experience. And so really just the state's role in providing those opportunities and providing merit-based opportunities for folks to get ahead regardless of their background is such an important one. So that's, that's one mm-hmm. thing that, that I take with me. It might be maybe more generally, um, you know, something that's uh, about the immigrant experience rather than something mm-hmm. that's specifically about the, the Portuguese American immigrant experience, but it, mm-hmm. that sort of stays with me every day. Uh, that is nonetheless. Great. Yeah. No, that is great. great because I believe that, that indeed, as you said, and uh, it's, 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 it's Portuguese, but it's also an immigrant experience. Sometimes we'd like to, uh, in our own communities, I think every community, not just the Portuguese American community, would like to segregate it as a, an exclusive to our end of the world, but we're a lot more universal than we are. We have a lot more in common than we, than right. we, we think. Yeah. Another thing that I think I, you know, I, I, I recognize about the Portuguese American experiences, and I alluded to this earlier, is just that the, the diaspora is so diffuse. It's, mm-hmm. There is not a significant concentration of, of Portuguese Americans in the same way that there can be a significant concentration of, of, of other groups in any one particular area. And to me, that's one of the reasons that PALCUS is so important, frankly, because it is an organization that exists at the, the national level that has the ability to bring together this diffuse population so that we can 
have a kind of single voice at the, the national level, potentially, that we sometimes don't even have at the local level. And I think that that might be something that is not unique to the Portuguese American immigrant experience, but is, um, is special to it uh, in the sense that that's one of the challenges that the, the Portuguese American community has is, is having a politically significant voice in any given um, location. Indeed, and I and I believe that we we've discussed this off and on at the different events that Pelkas has uh, put forth uh, our national conference, and recently at the, at the event in Sacramento a, a couple of months ago. And uh, you're, um, I, I wholeheartedly agree, uh, Tim. We have a little bit more of a voice at a local level, and sometimes we don't use that as much. Uh, as you mentioned, in California, we are the largest Portuguese American community thus far, according to the last census, anyway. But we're so we're all over the state, so you know we're not concentrating just one city or one neighborhood. And that in part is great because we've integrated. But um, most of the, what I've found here in California, I think your experiences you've been throughout the different states, you probably have seen that as well, is that most people who get into public office, especially elected public office, they kind of are pretty good, uh, to put it mildly, uh, at building bridges with other communities. I think that if you work on that experience as, as Americans, you know, of all different ethnicities, if you can build bridges, then I think you can probably have a little bit bigger of a voice. What's your opinion on that? Yeah, I, I think that that's that's absolutely right. It's it's a necessity, and it's, it's you know I don't think that really anyone who I know is of, who is of Portuguese descent appear you know looks at their own experience or their own interests in any kind of insular way. That that building bridges is is really the not just the, the way forward, but a necessity for um, for the Portuguese American community to be sure. And the last question I would have, Angela, do you have any other questions for Tim or comments before we wrap it up here in our uh, a lot of time? Yeah, just um, kind of building off of uh, what we were just talking about, the fact that in California we are so dispersed. So, you know, I don't know if you've had any uh, more direct interaction with the Portuguese community down in the Southern California, but what have been your observations and then what would be your advice to the community here in terms of making a difference and what can they do if they feel like things aren't going the way that they want to go to. And, and I, I, I'm going to guess that some of the advice is going to be pretty general and it could apply to any community, but I think it's just important for us to continue to repeat these types of things to remind people that, you know, if you do want to have a voice, if you do want your community to count, you have to do something about it. So I would just be interested to hear what your experience has been so far with the Portuguese community here, and then what would your advice be to the folks in the state of California, specifically since you're here? Um, what would what would you like to see more of from the community? I would say two things. One is that I'm one of a, a handful of Portuguese American appointees in California. I think it is important for members of the Portuguese American community to to find their way to positions like that, so that they can bring the kind of awareness or the, the, the sensitivity to the Portuguese American experience um, throughout California. So I, I do indeed try to keep in mind the experience of uh, Portuguese community living in the, the Central Valley in everything that I do. It's, it's not that, you know, we treat them special in any um, form or fashion, but just to have that awareness so that all communities in California are, are having the benefit of the, the services that the, the state provides. So I would encourage folks to obviously get involved in, um, in state government, encourage them to get involved locally 
and get involved in any way that they can. One of the greatest job titles that anyone can have is volunteer. And I think, you know, whether you're doing that locally in your own community or you're doing that in some other fashion. So, for example, since you know, given my job, I'll just mention if you if you're if you're helping volunteer or contribute to another community that's in need in response to a disaster in the wake of a disaster. That's also a great thing to do. But just to volunteer and to get in, in, involved and engaged for any amount of time uh, and in any issue that's important to you is the first step, and it's really the definition, the first definition of, of, of democratic engagement. And that's something that I think is important to, to all communities in California, uh, including the Portuguese American community. Well, Tim, thank you so much. I, this has been a wonderful conversation. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. I'm sure Angela has as well, and I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. that our listening audiences has also. One last question. You probably may not want to answer it, or may. I hope you do. But uh, when are you running for office, I hope? Because with your, <laughs> with your experience, I will be the very first to volunteer. I, don't, I do a little bit of volunteer. Uh. I'll be the very first one to volunteer in, uh, in, in having the next Portuguese-American senator, state senator or, or congressman or whatever you decide to run for. You have a wealth of experience, um, a wealth of knowledge, and, um, and I hope to see you uh, uh, running for some kind of a, a public office uh, soon. Or the first Portuguese-American well, governor of California. We have to give the current governor sure. another six years or seven. <laughs> but is, yeah, is or, that, or have, you, our, have you even contemplated that? Well, I was, I was just about to say, maybe um, we could make Governor Newsom an honorary Portuguese American. <laughs> we, we might have to discuss how to go about that. Uh, um, you know, I, uh, I think um, I, I, if I were to take my own advice, maybe I, w- I would run, although... No, no plans now, and uh, I'm not sure I have the aptitude for that kind of thing. I'm, I might want to leave uh, elected office to to the folks who are, um, who are who are better at some of the things that you need to do to get there. But it's it's kind of you to say that, and I'm glad I've got your vote. You do, yeah. you do, you do. You have my vote. You have my services as well. Uh, but anyway, uh, not on behalf of Palkus, but uh, on myself personally. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you are young, and I'm sure that uh, things change, and who knows, you know. Uh, but. Uh, Please uh, continue doing the great work and continue representing the Portuguese-American community so well. Uh, and you're right. I mean, we un- unfortunately only have a handful of folks at different levels, and sometimes we don't even know where they're at, and that's part of our uh, continued mission here at Palcus and, and uh, is to, uh, little by little, uh, plow through this, uh, this, this world of ours where we do have, uh, such as uh, this experience that we just lived in the last 30 minutes or so with you, Portuguese-Americans of second, third, and even fourth generation who are doing grand work as yourself. So those of you who are listening to us, please do reach out to us because it's kind of hard for us to get to know everyone everywhere throughout the United States. Again, thank you so much, Tim, and thank you uh, for your service. Thank you for your um, for your leadership in many ways and for continuing to, uh, uh, to to have this tie to your cultural roots. I think that's so important. Well, thank you. Thank you, Denise. I will just add, you know, like Denise said, you are young and never say never. So we'll, we'll keep, uh, we'll keep in touch. But uh, on, on a personal side note, one thing we do have in common is my paternal great grandfather was also Juan Pereira who changed his name to Perry. But uh, oh, I don't wow. think, <laughs> yeah, though he was from Terceira. So I don't know that we're, we're related, but you never know. Um, Terceira and Madeira rhyme. So there's a lot, you know, see. There you go. There you go. And you're both from islands. So, you know, you have that in common. 
right. Well, I, I'm echoing Denise's thanks and appreciation for your time, Tim. It was um, such a pleasure to get to know you, and I hope this is the first of many interactions that we have. And uh, wish you the best of luck, continued success, and if, of course, if there's anything that we can can do to help, you know, please let us know. And and also to Denise's point, to others out there, if you know anybody that is on the school board, on city council, at any, any level of uh, elected or appointed service, please let us know because we are building this strong network of national elected and appointed officials of Portuguese Americans. And, and we do come together uh, occasionally and, and help, uh, help each other out. So it, there's definitely a purpose to our gathering this information. So please, please let us know. And thank you all out there for listening to another episode of Politicus. If you have feedback or suggestions, please email us at palcus at palcus.org. And if you haven't hit subscribe, please do so and leave us a review on iTunes so that more Portuguese Americans can find us and listen to the conversation and also participate, share with friends and family. And we look forward to having you join us next time. So until then, Boas Vestas, as we are in the holiday season. And thank you both again for your time, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to Politicus, the official podcast of Palcus, the Portuguese American Leadership Council of the United States. Palcus is the premier national organization representing the interests of the Portuguese American community at large. To learn more about Palcus and how to become a member or to make a donation, visit www.palcus.org. Palcus, P-A-L-C-U-S dot org. To submit feedback or suggestions about the podcast, email us at palcus at palcus dot org. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the show are not endorsed by Palcus. Politicus is made possible through the support of the Luso-American Development Foundation.